Thank you for listening to the Rivers Church podcast with Pastor Andre and the Rivers team. Be sure to subscribe for a weekly dose of encouragement and inspiration to help your daily life. We pray that this message will help in whatever season of life you might be in. The book of 1 John is what we're dealing with, and it's our third week, and so we're on the third chapter. If you're just tuning in online or in the building for the first time, I see a few people back. Mr. Steve Mosden has come back from the beaches of Greece and now has graced us with his presence. Pay attention as I recap. (laughs) But just to recap, the book of John, John was one of the three key disciples, Peter, James, and John. He was known as a son of thunder, a tough man, wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans when they wouldn't receive Jesus, but becomes the disciple of love, writes five books in the Bible, three letters, two of them very personal. He writes a gospel, and he writes the book of John, the gospel of John, sorry, the the book of Revelation, as well as the Gospel of John, and then he writes this letter to the Asian churches who he sees are in error. He's a much older man, one of the last alive, and so around AD 95, AD 100, he addresses the issues he sees in these churches, and there were two of them, I will remind you, so that you don't forget. The first one's called Docetism, and that is, uh, comes from a man called Serinthus, who developed this doctrine that matter is evil and God is good, and so Jesus could never have come in a body because God could never live amongst evil people, so Jesus was just anointed. God used him, but he wasn't the Son of God. He wasn't the third person of the Trinity. And uh, that has strong bearing because they believed that if you sinned in your body, it didn't matter as long as your spirit was saved. So guess what? The church indulged in all kinds of sin, and that's why he addressed them in chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we lie, and we do not the truth. He's not trying to make us feel guilty. He's trying to point out that our sin needs dealing with, and he addresses the deity of Jesus, and then he addresses something called Gnosticism, the Greek word for special knowledge, gnosis is knowledge. They thought they were superior through fasting and through different practices. And that's why there was disunity in the church. And that's why you hear the word love all the time. Important, otherwise you read it and you take it out of context. And you think you can use the word love randomly like some word the world uses. You see, John talks about love, 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 love. I think it's some 40 times in the book. But he's not talking about the love you think he's talking about. He's not talking about sexual love. In fact, the word eros in the Greek Greek is never used. He's talking about disunity amongst people because of superiority, pride. (laughs) Interesting word. And so we want to get into the book today and look at chapter 3. We looked at chapter 2 last week. He says in chapter 2 that we mustn't sin, we mustn't fall away, we mustn't be captured by the world, we mustn't be deceived. So chapter 3 today is 24 verses. We're going to look at it in two sections, and remember, I say this every time we do this book, what we believe is how we will live. Amen? Don't forget that. That's why your belief is important, and you say, well, I'm not interested in doctrine. Teach me something practical. We do that most of the time, but here's the thing. What you believe is how you will live. And so John 
here in chapter 3, we will look at it, and I'll give you an outline. We're going to look at it in two chunks because it's 24 verses. We're going to do the first half and the second half, and then we're going to do eight things, eight benefits that he talks about, the children of God's benefits in the book. But when we get to, to the seventh benefit, we're going to break it down into four things because it makes it easier to grasp. And then we'll get to the eighth one, and then we will wrap up, God willing, in the time allotted. Say amen. Help him, Lord Jesus. So let's read from John uh, chapter, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. Wonderful language. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Notice the word, are. Oh, amazing. Then he says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, watch this, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. In other words, there's no special knowledge here about what will happen in the future. We're not fully sure. We are and we aren't. He says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. They're expecting the second coming. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. In other words, they don't do as they like because God has lavished love on them. They purify themselves to be like him. Are you, are you seeing that? Then he says here, and he mentions sin ten times, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. You can see that in your own country today. Lawlessness prevails. But you know that he appeared so he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Now, if you're making notes or you're writing somewhere in your Bible, you need to write there habitually. Otherwise, you can feel condemned. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I... Gee, I get angry, I, I, I have uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, I, I have pride, I, I lied. Oh my word, I can't be a Christian. No, he's not saying that. He's saying that there's not a natural tendency to be habitually in sin. You've been illuminated, so your desire is for God. Are you with me? And he's drawing a conclusion here, or a, a, sorry, a comparison between the world, the unsaved, and the saved. That's why he calls us children of God. Just sorry to interject there, but just to help you understand that. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, you, as a Christian, you can think, my word, that means I'm, I, I haven't really been saved. No, no, he's talking to people who don't believe that their sin matters, that, who think it's okay to sin in the body, my spirit is saved. And he's saying, no, 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 there's no such thing. When you're a child of God, your desire is to honor God and live as Jesus lived. Are you with me? He says, dear children... Do not in, let anyone lead you astray. He's talking about the heresy in the church, this belief, docetism. Sin doesn't affect the spirit. He's saying that's deception. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous, Jesus. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He tempted Eve. He started the whole thing in the beginning first. His own pride. Isn't it interesting that the devil's first sin was pride? And then he comes and he starts in Genesis with Eve. And sin and deception has always been part of the devil's nature. The reason the Son of God appeared, watch this, was to destroy the devil's work. 
No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. The Word of God lives in you, so you know what you should do. They cannot go on sinning. It doesn't mean that they're unable to. It means they don't want to go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are. Notice this. And who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. It doesn't say, watch this, it doesn't say love humanity. It says your brother or sister. There's a context. He's talking about in the church where there was division through superiority. I've got superior knowledge, Gnosticism. I'm above you. And even if I sin, my body's saved. This was fracturing the church, and he, he was addressing it. So there's a context to everything you're reading. Now, before we get into the eight benefits and privileges of the children of God, just want to show you here that this phrase, the children of God, is a term that people use, and uh, I know it was in one of the songs, uh, you, you, some of you are too young to remember, but the song called Woodstock, about the Woodstock Pop Festival, and a guy sings, I was walking down the road, and I came across a child of God. He, he was on his way to the Pop Festival. Now, the term children of God is almost like anyone who's a human, but John's not saying that here. He's saying children of God are distinctly different from humans and children of the devil. And you can't apply it to everybody. Oh, we're all children of God. No, we're not. He's making a distinction here about those who are saved and those who are not. Are you with me? Because there's been a change, and you have children of the world, you have children of God, and you have children of the devil. And you need to know who you are and what you are instead of trying to make humanity all one. Oh, we love, love, love. No, love has a righteous component to it. Are you with me? And so the children of the world, just to remind you here, Luke chapter 16, this is Jesus speaking. He says, and it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. Can you see this distinction there? You can be working with people, but there's a difference between you and them. They are of the world, you are of light. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus says to the Pharisees, who are religious, by the way, he says, for you are, are, are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. You'll see that terminology coming up in the second half of the letter. But let's look at eight benefits here and privileges of being children of God. Number one, we receive the great love of God. It's, if you're a Christian, you, God's love is lavished on you because you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've received mercy and forgiveness, and it is a wondrous thing. I don't know if you realize that. You have been forgiven, and he says, see what great love he's lavished on us. It's an amazing thing to be given the gift of eternal life and to be called a child of God. We receive that great love of God. The second thing, and I'll do these first four quickly, we are named after God. Now, the reason we're called children of God is not just some term. It means we are family of God. If you bump into Simon, people say, aren't you Andre and Vilma's daughter? Why? Because she carries the family name. Isn't that true? Pele, it's a bit difficult because there's so many Pele's. And Naidu's everywhere. But you carry the family. You are a child of God. If you're a child of God, there should be a family likeness. People don't go, are you so-and-so's child? They usually go, oh, you look just like your father. We need to look just like God. 
and we'd be named that. So we should carry the family likeness, especially when it comes to righteousness. And God calls us his family. Thirdly, we will be like Jesus when we see him. That's a hope that we've got. That all the troubles and negativity and sin of this life, he says, we don't know what we'll fully be like, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him. Resurrected, made perfect, and glorious and, and righteous. And I don't know about you, but I look forward to that. And then he says here, the fourth thing, the fourth benefit, he says we live differently to the world. You're a Christian, you have to live differently to the world. And I don't mean you mustn't wear jeans and you mustn't wear makeup and all that nonsense. Your behavior is different. And verse 1 to 3, he says this, you are children of God. But then he says this, but what you will be. You see, you, you, here's the thing you need to know. As a Christian, you are a child of God and you are saved, but you also are being saved and you will be saved. There is an are and then there is a being. You, you're being. You're being created and you're in process, but you are on a foundation of salvation. Does that make sense? And so we are in process and we live differently to the world and God is changing us. And because of that, we purify ourselves. We aim to be like the family of God. And uh, you know what they say when you bump into someone who looks just like their father or mother? You say, they're a chip off the old block. We should be a chip of God's block or Jesus' block. We should look like him, behave like him, and serve him. And that's why he says, don't let anyone lead you astray into sin and bad behavior. And the culture is trying to do that to us daily. And the thing that really irks me is that churches have capitulated to sin because of world trends, and they think that's the way to win people. No, that's the way to destroy the church. Rick Warren actually says this. He says, history shows that when the church accommodates culture, it weakens it. A church doesn't get stronger by accommodating sin. It weakens it. We stop behaving like the family of God. And we start behaving like the family of the world or the family of the devil. Are you with me? And so we need to be careful of that. Then number five, the fifth benefit or, or the uh, privilege of, of what we are is sin doesn't rule us anymore. As, as a Christian, you sin, but sin doesn't command your life. God commands your life. I mean, you know, you don't wake up in the morning and ignore God and just live your life and then come to church on Sunday and sing. You, you're trying to serve the Lord. But every now and again, you get angry. Every now and again, you lose your cool. Every now and again, you think things you shouldn't. You get negative. You doubt God. And, uh, and, and then you go, no, I need to believe his word. Sin doesn't rule us. It doesn't mean we don't sin. Let me explain it to you like this. You, you, before you get saved, most people, and if you're a smoker, don't feel condemned. That's not the goal of this illustration. Before I became a Christian, I used to smoke Lucky Strike. Did you know there was such a cigarette? Then I stopped smoking Lucky Strike, and I used to roll my own cigarettes in lemon paper. And uh, people used to think I was smoking grass on the train. In those days, you could smoke on the train. Can you believe it? You could smoke on the train. I used to roll my own with tobacco, but then I got saved and I, my desire for those things, and I didn't want to damage my body, so I stopped smoking. But if you get on a train and everyone else is smoking, when you get home, your wife will say, have you been smoking? Because you can't avoid the smell of smoke. You no longer desire it, but you're among people who do, and it gets on you. 
And so as a Christian, there's no desire to smoke, but believers smell like smoke, and that's what people like to point out. Oh, you Christians think you're better. Now, our desire is different. It no longer rules us, but I do occasionally slip up. I might have a drag, as they say, or I might smell like smoke. Does that make sense? It'll help you understanding how sin works and he says here that Jesus came to, uh, came to deal with sin. How can we practice something that Jesus came to abolish? If Jesus came to abolish sin, how can we keep doing it and say God loves you anyway? No, Jesus died on the cross to remove our sins. And we can't practice what he came to abolish. We can't do what the unbelievers do. You see, here's, here's the difference between Christians and unbelievers. Unbelievers sin against God's laws. Don't miss this. But Christians sin against God's love. When you sin, you're sinning against love. Unbelievers are just breaking God's law because they don't know God and they don't live according. We try and live according to God's law. We live according to God's word, but we actually sin against his love. Because he says, I love you. I don't want you to do that. I want you to be my family. I want you to be my children. And so John is addressing this, and it's so easy for us to be dragged away. And bear, bear in mind, you get dragged away by your own desires. Uh, it's, not, it's not the devil that always does it. It's you that allows sin to rule in you. And you need to have the word living in you. He talks about the seed living in you, and it teaches us to remain in God. Uh, pastor Alistair Begg, I'll finish this point with this quote. He's a, a, a British pastor and theologian. He, he says this, he says, a good church is a Bible-centered church. Nothing is as important as this. Not a large congregation, a witty pastor, or tangible experiences of the Holy Spirit. How I many of it's good to have a good pastor? Good to have a large church that's influencing the city. Isn't that true? But it's much more important to be Bible-centered because that will keep us from sin ruling us and will keep us walking in God's love. Does that make sense? Number six here, you know, the sixth benefit that he points out is that we have passed from death to life. I hope this is helping you, by the way, I'm breaking it down, because it's just one long chapter, and I try to find the best way to make it in sections so that you can remember the truth. Maybe you'll go and glance at those notes later, and the points will help you. But he says we have passed from death to life. We haven't read it yet. We're about to read it, but it is a benefit because you say, well, what does it mean, passed from death to life? You currently in your body, just like me, are living on the earth, but we're actually citizens of heaven. We, we, we haven't died yet, but we're already on our way to heaven. We've passed from death to life. He said, well, I haven't died yet. No, he's talking about what you are, and then there's also what you aren't. You are the children of God, but sometimes we don't behave like it. Yes, because we are, but we're also on a process of becoming more like God's children. There's, the, there's what we are, and there's what we're not. They call it a dichotomy. And what the church is trying to do worldwide today, they're only focusing on one thing. You are God's children. God loves you. God's on your side. There's nothing you can do to stop God's love. It doesn't matter how much you sin. It doesn't matter if you practice things that the Bible t tells you not to. God loves you. God loves you. They're only focusing on one. But the Bible actually in its entirety is about what you are and about what you aren't. And you can't remove one whole dimension. That's the place where we grow in God, grow in holiness, grow in obedience. Are you with me? We need the 
too, and they are under a tension sometimes. I'm telling you this because you need to discern what's going on in the Christian world. So let's read the second section now where it tells us here that we are citizens of heaven. 1 John 3 and verse 11. Are you all with me? You're focused. Those of you that are dozing off, may you sleep nicely. And if you're dozing off at home in bed, the Lord rebuke you in Jesus' name. Wake up, for I'm returning, says the Lord. Okay, you're all with me. Let's go. 1 John 3 and verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Seven times he mentions the word love. He goes from sin to dealing with unity now. Do not be like Cain. I want you to pay attention here. It's very important. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Murder. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. It doesn't say because he was uh, evil. He says because he first mentions his brother's actions because his brother showed him up. Are you with me? He says, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. It's talking about the church. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister, notice it doesn't say humanity, a brother or sister is a murderer, gosh. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So he's gone from talking about murder, would you notice that, to talking about hate, hatred. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we've got an example. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, indifferent, how can the love of God be in that person? Let's just pause here. You see what it's saying here is that we know what love is by laying down our lives for the church. He's not saying we know what love is if we love everybody no matter what they do in the world, even if they sin. Are you hearing me? The world's telling you today, you must just love everybody, because if you don't, you're not a proper Christian. And a true church just loves everybody. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you love the brothers and sisters, and you lay your life down for them, and you serve them because they are your family. I'm amazed how many people love humanity but don't love the church. You can't be a Christian and have this charity spirit and I don't tithe to a church because they've got these big buildings, but I give to Hope for Humanity and I give to the Nelson Mandela Foundation. You sound righteous, but you're actually a complete heretic. The Bible says that if you love the church, you should lay down your life for the church. And you start with the church, meeting the church's needs. Now, I'll come to that in a moment. We'll break it down. Are, are you with me? Context is so important. Then he says here, this is, uh, I picked it up there. Dear children, do not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In other words, don't just say, but do. And don't just be a Christian, do Christian things. Are you with me? This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts 
and he knows everything. In other words, if you're living right, it's easy to feel condemned. But if you're walking in love and you love the house of God and you're trying your best to serve him and your focus is on Jesus, don't let your heart condemn you. Dear friends, now here comes to another positive benefit, and we'll talk about it in a moment. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. There's nothing like going to God when, you've, when you're walking right with the Lord and praying. You just feel like you've got access. But when, you, when you're living unrighteous, sometimes you feel, I'm not going to bother. He won't, he won't answer me. Not at the moment. Amen? And he says here, and this is his commandment, notice first part, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ, and then the second part, to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them, and this is how we know that he lives in us, we know by the spirit he gave us. So it is not love for the world he's talking about here, it's love for God's church, the world, its system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We shouldn't just love that and accept it. We need to love God's house, and then we need to try and reach the world and bring them to salvation. How can we love that which opposes Christ on the earth? How can we, oppose, how can we support that which Jesus died to remove? We can't. Are you with me? And I want to remind you there are three things God loves because people are so anti-church. It shocks me. God loves, number one, his son. It's the son he loves, his only son. Number two, he loves his church. Jesus calls the church his bride. You don't go to a wedding and point out, oh, there she walks. Did you see that, that thing she's dragging? It's got dirt on it. Come here, let me, look here. They'll kick you out of that wedding. No, if the veil is skew, if the heel is broken because she walked on the grass or whatever, you just keep quiet and you just clap because the bride is perfect. So Jesus loves his bride. God loves his bride. And then he loves lost people. He wants us to reach them. He doesn't love them to be lost. Are you with me? And you, if you're a child of God, need to love God's son, love God's church, and constantly reach out to lost people not accommodate them. And people are trying to find loopholes in the Bible. I notice over the last 20 years, people are studying the original language. Oh, the word boy means this in the Greek. And Jesus wouldn't have healed him if he knew that he was that. And on and on people go, just read the Bible correctly. Stop looking for loopholes. There was a playboy in, uh, in America. He's uh, W.C. Fields. And he, he was known to live a licentious life. And he ended up ill and in hospital, and someone visited him in hospital, and the guy walked in, and uh, the man asked why he was reading the Bible so intently, and he said, I'm looking for loopholes. No, don't look for loopholes, just serve the Lord. So number seven here, let me move on, I hope you're still following me. The wonderful thing that's happened to us as children of God is that we live a life of love, not hate. Even though we're accused of hate, but here's the thing, did you know God hates sin? We don't hate people, but we hate sin. We ought to hate what God hates and love what God loves. But we live a life of love now, especially amongst the believers. We have love for believers. And seven times in this chapter, John mentions this word love. He saw the example of Jesus and he said we need to love one another like that. We mustn't be superior. And we ought to lay down our lives and serve one another as part of the same family. Francis Bacon, the British philosopher, said this. 
He said, nothing doth so keep men out of the church and drive men out of the church as breach of unity. You see, we ought to walk in love, and we ought to love the church, warts and all. Now, I said to you that I would break this down in four points, because he talks in this chapter about four important things. And the first one is under this heading here, we've just read it, talks about Cain. He first talks about murder. Are you with me? And he talks about four levels of relationship, and he starts with murder uh, from the most serious, and we work down to the proper love that he's talking about. And so murder here, he, he, he talks about Cain as an example of murder, and I want you to notice what he says, that Cain is actually a child of the devil. Do you notice that? But Cain was not an atheist. Cain and Abel were in church together. Both were worshiping God. I want you to listen to this. And the Bible says Cain murdered Abel because Abel's deeds were righteous. In other words, when he saw what his brother was doing, he got so angry that he tried to get rid of his brother because he had an alternative form of worship. You see, you don't worship according to your own revelation. God told them how to worship. You are to bring me the first of the flocks, not the first of the ground. Cain says, what's the difference? I'll do it this way. I'm still giving. God says, no, no, you can't worship me out of your revelation. You have to worship me out of what I want, out of my revelation. So Abel worships God according to what God says. And that, by the way, can I tell you this? Faith, true faith, is worshiping God according to what he says, not according to what you believe. A lot of people are in church today, sitting in churches, and this is what they're saying. Uh, uh, I do this, this, and this, and I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says you mustn't, but I still love Jesus. Now, you're worshiping like Cain out of your own imagination, and you know it'll happen eventually. You'll attack the believers alongside you who are living according to God's revelation because the two cannot cohabit because one are children of God, others are children of the devil. And, and he wasn't an atheist. He was a believer because they both worshiped God. Are you with me? And today, people are telling us, no, no, you must just love. No, that's not what John's saying. He's not saying we must just love. He's saying we need to worship God, or we'll end up with such division that people will try and attack you. Do you know that they will murder a church today or cancel a church today that lives righteously and speaks against certain behaviors? Why don't you just leave us be to serve God? No, you're trying to alter our doctrine and you want us to worship God out of your revelation when we're saying, sorry, we're worshiping him out of his. Are you with me? So murder, and uh, he was annoyed, he was irked, and people today are irked because we worship God according to his revelation. Number two, the second category here, we move from murder to hatred, because most of us have not murdered anybody. I trust that we haven't. But many of us hate people and have hated people, and what he's saying here as he speaks to us, he says you can't live in hatred, you can't be part of the family of God and hate the people in your family. Are you with me? Now, one of the challenges here is most families, natural families in the world, and I say most, are living in dysfunction, hatred, bitterness, nastiness, swearing, anger, annoyance, drunkenness, uh, bad stewardship, there's constant friction. That's why as soon as the children get to an age where they can leave, they're out. I'm out. Where are you going? I'm, I'm out. I'm just out. Are you coming for supper? I don't know. 
And they come home and they slam the door and there's a big no entry sign on it. Parents keep out. You knock on the door. What do you want? That's where most families, now we come into the church. We don't suddenly get a halo. I love you. I love you. Praise God. No, you have the same shut the door spirit. Don't sit next to me. I don't want to sit. I want to be at the back where I can just, just me and God. And I want to hear the message and I'm going home. No, no, you ought to lay down your life for your brothers. See, the church is more important than you think. And I get really annoyed when people attack the church because, you know, people, people say this, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. No, then you're not part of this family. I don't mean this family, the church family. And I get annoyed with people who should know better on, on an Instagram post, and I've blurred out the name, but some of you know exactly who I'm talking about. This person actually posts this on Instagram. You didn't give your life to the church. The church didn't die and shed its blood for you. The church didn't save you, and it's not your Lord and Savior. The church didn't promise not to leave you nor forsake you. The church won't get you to heaven. Jesus didn't die for the church, but for humanity. Why are you actually posting that? What is your point? Do you think that's going to help people to come to church and love the church? No, it's because you have drifted out of the church. You live in the motivational speaking world. Now you think you're clever and profound, but you're actually influencing Christians and making them not love God's family. You're actually moving from a child of God to the child of the devil, even though you're a good speaker. Those of you that follow this person, you must watch out. Because some people speak in our church, but later on you'll notice Pastor Andre and Wilma don't follow them. And we don't like what they like. Because they don't speak the language of the gospel, they speak the language of the world. The church isn't perfect, but it's God's vehicle of grace, and we need to love it and not hate it. Billy Sunday was a radical evangelist in America, and he said this, hypocrites in the church, yes, and in the lodge, and at the home. Don't hunt through the church for a hypocrite. Go home and look in the mirror. Hypocrites, yes, see that you make the number one less. Aren't you tired of hearing that? The church is full of hypocrites. Well, what do you think you are? When you go to your family, you drive there in the car, and I hope Auntie Sansa is in there, and she always talks about her curry, and Sansa is here, and then you get there, hello, how are you? And then you want to point out the church. What's wrong with you? Mm, can I have an amen? John Calvin says, wherever, you, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, there a church of God exists, even if it swarms with many faults. Number three, the third quality here, and he's moved from murder to hatred. Are you following with me in the text now as we're unpacking it? We move to what's called indifference. He says, if you see your brother or sister in need and you don't show pity, that's called indifference. And it's very easy to live where you don't feel any pity. Verse 17 in the chapter talks about it. He says, you know, you, you need to, love is the badge of a Christian. How can you see people in need and not meet their need? Now, the challenge in the church is this, that the minute the church begins to help people, especially the church as an institution, people then start to suck on the church like a, like a baby on a teat. And they don't do what they're supposed to do for themselves. However, as individual believers, we ought to feel for people in need, especially not just, not just in the church uh, like, like here, but the wider church. There are believers who can't put food on the table, and that's why we run the Rivers Foundation. 
We feed children in schools whose parents can't feed them. We can't be indifferent to the needs of people and then live in behind gated communities with electric fences, with underfloor heating, with home theaters, with jacuzzis, and all that stuff and not feel anything. We should feel it, and if we don't, something's wrong. So you might not be a murderer, you might not have hatred, but you could have indifference. I think many of us could fall into the category so easily. And we ought to lay down our lives for fellow believers when we see flooding, we see need. At prayer meetings, we receive offerings. That's part of what Rivers Church does. We need to do it in actions and truth, not in theory. And let's always try to do something for people. You know, one of the hardest things is to drive past people at robots. Now, a lot of them don't want to work. A lot of them are stoned out of their minds on drugs and want to live like that. I've encountered many of them over the years, try to build bridges with them and give them, but then in the end, they just want you to be like a benefactor. They don't want to actually work. So you've got to be very careful, but there are instances where you can open your heart. On Saturday morning, we drove over the bridge by the Sunning Hill Hospital, and there's an old man there. He often says, God bless you, and so on, and I presume he might be a believer. We didn't have anything in the car, but there was some water. I was on my way to speak at a men's conference uh, yesterday morning. Gosh, it feels like a lifetime ago. Yesterday morning. So what we did was, Chris and I were together. I gave him a bottle of water. I couldn't just, I couldn't allow indifference. I couldn't. I couldn't. I had a bottle of water that wasn't opened, and you know what? Oh. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I just, his wrinkled eyes, I was like, oh, Lord Jesus. If only I could do something more. This is a challenge for us. But listen, especially when it comes to fellow believers. The Bible says in the book of Galatians, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. And so we can't be murderers. We mustn't hate the church, but we mustn't be indifferent. But lastly, he talks about love in action. Let's love, he says, in action and in truth. Verse 18 talks about that. What we say and what we believe must come out in our actions, and we should, we should serve God's church with love and actions. You should be giving financially. That's a given. The Bible instructs you to. Even if the church is strong and the church has got good facilities, that's your duty. It's the way you show love. You should be serving in a ministry. Why? Because Jesus laid down his life for us. It's not just in your head. It's in action. And so serving, being a participant in the life of the church, giving of finances, is serving in actions and in truth. And then the church will benefit from that. And then lastly here, I need to close. I've got one minute left. Has this helped you today? Gosh, it's so much information, I trust. Number eight, the eighth benefit that we've read in all these 24 verses, is it? Uh, yes, is we have access to the Father through prayer. When we live right, when we walk in humility, when we confess our sin, when we seek to live according to the seed of the word, when we are loving the house of God, the Bible says then we have a clear conscience and we can go to God. Verse 22 says we can ask whatever or receive anything from him we ask and we can pray and we can have our, heart, our needs met because our hearts won't condemn us. How many of you know that doesn't mean you can ask for anything? Are you with me? Just to qualify, you can't pray about a married woman at work. Oh God, I pray that she become mine. And that my wife leaves me. You said I can ask any. N n no. 
Oh God, I desperately want to open a bar where women can dance topless because I've heard it's very lucrative. Would you? Are you with me? Lest we, lest we take the word anything and we become stupid. No, it's according to his will and according to his timing. So prayer gives us access. But when, that's why at a prayer meeting, when we pray according to God's will, we can pray so boldly because we know. He told us to pray for the country. told us to pray for healing. Are you with me? So we can do it boldly. Make sure that when you're praying, you're not praying out of fantasy. You're praying out of truth. And then if your conscience is clear, you love the house of God, you have access to him, and he blesses your life. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message. 